that knowledge was inside of me. The experiences were there. You can't take the relinquishment of a baby, the separation of a mother. You cannot remove those from the baby. They're in there. And I mean, I, I and many other people, I'm sure, am proof of that. Am I? Who 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 am I? This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to meet Danielle. After years of struggling to get along with her adoptive mother, who struggled as a World War II survivor, Danielle finally figured out the reasons for their differences. She's a late discovery adoptee, but hers was less of a discovery, more of a revelation that overcame her in the middle of the night. She found her birth mother, who wondered why it took so long for them to finally connect. Then the magic died, and their reunion was over. Later, Danielle did a DNA test, connecting to a distant paternal relative, and it was just in time to meet her birth father. This is Danielle's journey. Danielle is originally from Montreal, Canada. When I asked Danielle to tell me about her life as a child, she decided to start here. I guess the best place to begin is that I'm a late discovery adoptee. I figured it out on my own after some fairly complicated internal discussions, you know, as to what was going on in my family. I had felt that something was off. So, you know, I was 29, almost 30, when at a family reunion, I, uh, cooking by day and then crying and sitting in a bathtub by night, not really knowing what was physically happening to me. And, you know, this is not a regular occurrence for me or anything. So I was, you know, just really a month away from being 30. So with that said, my family, I was born in Montreal, Canada, and it was a closed private adoption. My parents were Hungarian World War II survivors from Europe. And the people in the family who survived World War II went to Canada, and they went all over the world, but my particular adopted family landed in Canada. And um, when I was, I think I was about eight months old, they got pregnant. They, they had had miscarriages, so they didn't think they could have a natural-born child. So I'm not sure how they decided to adopt me, but basically, I'm the oldest child after the war, so they really needed some kind of reason to keep going. So fairly quickly, they got pregnant and had two biological children, and uh, they were married, and we were Jewish. I was raised Jewish and, you know, fairly rigorous training and all of that, and I ended up you know, teaching Hebrew school and, and all the while, uh, you know, I was blonde and freckled and they were really of a different complexion and darker skin and hair. And people would say, you know, you don't look Jewish. And I'd say, you can't tell just by looking at someone. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, you know, I went through all that, which, you know, really added to sort of the shock when I figured it all out. But so did I answer the question about my family? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to just, if you don't mind, I want to pick apart a couple of things that you said. You, you said I was the oldest child after the war. What I took right. that to mean was your family, when they migrated to Canada from, was it Hungary, you said? Yes, uh, Hungary and France. And France. There were no other children 
in the family at that time. Like there had been no births. This is wartime. I would imagine there was a whole right. So you're the first right. one to follow at the end of the war in 1945. Yeah. So I was born in 1962. Mm-hmm. And my parents were pretty young during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was nine years older than my mother. So he was a little bit older. She was effectively a child, really. So they they both, they didn't come to Canada together. But in that family line, you know, they they arrived and we're going to start life over, you know, in the new yeah. country. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I would imagine for their, from their perspective and for their part, they probably felt some pressure, right? They've fled and survived a war and yeah. they want to continue the legacies of their own individual families. Right. They've married and chosen to do that together. And now for whatever reasons, they can't. And so adoption right. brought you into their lives. That's really interesting. And it came with, you know, this big job. I mean, they've said as much that I was supposed to save them. So, you know, it's pretty heavy, heavy stuff. The, the you know, I lived under a lot of heavy war trauma and not really even in my body knowing that and not having them be my biological parents, you know, I was completely, I was just a really different child for them in that way. And so. Yeah. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about saving them when you heard that? What did you Mm -hmm. think that meant? Well, on, on a lot of levels, I knew what it meant my whole life because I, I don't know, I had this place in the family that was about joy and laughter. And I, you know, there were parts of the family that as time rolled on, there were rifts or breaks in the family due to people marrying out of the faith. And so I just never understood things like that. So I was always in contact with everybody or would put on a dinner for, you know, both sides and, you know, unbeknownst to me what was going on. But, you know, initially I was just a little, little super baby arriving to everyone in the family. So there was a lot of joy surrounding my arrival with the exception of my mother, I don't think that ever really, I don't think she really felt the joy, but so. What, what do you mean? Well. If she was part of your adoption, what do you mean? Yeah, I don't know that that really worked out so well for her. Um, you know, it was just, I think she was just too traumatized to take in a baby, you know, someone else's baby and. She she really, um, I think she really struggled with that. And then when she had her own children, that became more pronounced, you know. Did she struggle with them also? No. Oh, the struggle was with you, the adoptee. Correct. Danielle didn't look like her adoptive family. They have darker complexions with dark hair, and she was fairer skinned with blonde hair visual cues that separated her from the family. She said they're also very different in their bodies, faces, and everything. Keep in mind, as a child, Danielle didn't know she was adopted, so the tension at home with her adoptive mother was odd for her, though she could definitely feel it. Outside of her home, things were great. Danielle did well in school, had a lot of friends whom she roamed the neighborhood with, and she was very social. I had lots of great experiences. Home life was difficult, but... Yeah, so that must have been weird to feel like... Right. Everywhere else in my life, I'm feeling good, but this home, why does it feel so weird? Like, was that... I know you didn't know, but the fact that there were visual cues, probably even to you, like, why don't I look that much like my parents? And why does everyone say that to us? And I right. get along with them. Did, like, was there a tug inside of you that just? Absolutely. I remember wondering where my mother was 
at a fairly young age. I'm a great double blind study. If you listen to all the adoptees that share stories about feeling certain feelings, I had all those feelings and really didn't know why. So that's what I meant when I said I, by the time I was 29, I was done living the part in the family that was given to me. Uh, you know, I needed to figure out w what was up. And it, it had been a big secret. No one spoke of it. I, I remember trying to, you know, crack the code, as it were, and no luck. I mean, that, that vault was shut. So even before you actually knew there was a vault to be sort of turning the lock on. I was trying to pick it. You were trying to pick something and you didn't even realize yeah. what it was. Right. And it was completely solid shut. That's really fascinating. Danielle was the oldest of the three girls in the house, but her middle sister was so close to her in age, they grew up in tandem. They got along really well. And when her younger sister was born, Danielle really took the baby under her wing. Danielle was only six years old, but she was thrilled to have a baby sister. So she took to feeding the infant and caring for her. She would even go comfort her baby sister when she cried in the middle of the night. I asked if the mother was withdrawn from her baby girl. You know, I really think she just was so traumatized by the war. And so she did the best she could in her life. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was just me that she didn't really relate to and probably didn't feel like she really wanted to deal with. Like she, she recounts my being as a very difficult child. And I don't know, you know, what was up with her really. I, I still don't know very much about what was up with her other than we didn't have a bond and we didn't share any kind of mother-daughter type relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could, I can see how the war would be extremely traumatizing for anybody who's a survivor, let alone someone yeah. who's trying to parent and someone who's trying to parent a child that they were not able to conceive themselves. It's a complex situation for anybody. Right. Um, and, and especially getting pregnant right away too, you know? Right. Yeah. My father wasn't as um, traumatized. He was a little bit older and they were in France and different situations. So he wasn't as traumatized. So, I did have, you know, sort of a softer place there to land. And how was he? Like, you've talked a little bit about your mother and, and sort of her anguish and, and challenge of being a survivor. But how, how was your relationship with him? It was easier. Uh, just he seemed to genuinely care for me and, and genuinely like me. So that was nice to feel that somewhere, you know, within the home. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, of one of your parents. Yeah, that that's such a basic thing that should be part of any home. So for you right. to highlight that as a feature of your relationship with him, it, it underscores the sadness that you've sort of outlined. It's really crazy. And, you know, no one is guaranteed a great relationship with either parents or guaranteed a great family, you know, situations, not just adopted people, but then having been relinquished at birth and traumatized in that way. And I am a really sensitive person. I was really traumatized also. Yeah, I, I was really, I didn't understand in my tiny brain, you know, I didn't really understand like where my mother was or why my mother didn't love me. I couldn't ever reconcile that. It took me till I was 29, you know, since it didn't come out in any other way. It took me, you know, I finally decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to fix my heart, whatever is the deal. I'm going to figure out like what's wrong with me and why this is the way it is. I didn't care for that. You know, I didn't understand what was up. So as a teen, Danielle really liked school. She tried to be involved in various activities, but she felt like a little bit of an outsider. Her European, 
Jewish family had moved from Montreal to California, so she felt like they were just a little different. Danielle also admitted she didn't care for the way she was parented by her mother, so she was seen as rebellious. Periodically, her hard home life followed her to school. She would occasionally show up to school teary-eyed after altercations at home. But mostly, she tried to move forward happily in her life, keeping the only trouble she had at home. We just heard Danielle say, I'm going to figure out, like, what's wrong with me? When I asked what that meant, she told me stories of helping people in her life when they were dying, being present for the birth of babies, and people in those intense situations realizing they could rely on her to stay present and focused, supporting whoever the person was in need. Danielle talks about one of her birth experiences and the lead-up to the big family event where she finally figured it all out for herself. I had a few births that I attended, and I was preparing for one of them just before my 29th birthday. And while I was preparing, I knew it was going to be a hard birth, and I so I was just sort of trying to psychically get in touch with, okay, what's happening in the baby and and I came across a, a book of some I can't remember the title but there was a line in the book that said something about asking your mother about your conception story and I remember reading that line and thinking well I can't do that and so I left it there I wasn't focused on myself really at that point but there were I called them revolving doors I had a series of revolving doors leading up to that revelation that I had that gave me all the information I needed. And I didn't really know I was stacking the information up, but I had hit a place in my life where I thought, I'm just sort of done being this bad child in the family. I mean, I can't carry that bag anymore. And you know, I remember getting on the airplane. So I was in California, had to fly back to Montreal for this gathering. And I remember seeing my sisters in California. I went earlier somehow, probably to help with food and whatnot. And I I shared a little bit about what had been going on with me. And I told my sisters, you know, look, we just have a really different mother. You know, that was the last sentence I said, because... You know, everybody wanted me to get along with her and everybody wanted her to get along with me and nobody could make it happen. And so I finally just said, I quit. I'm just going to quit trying. I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. You know, I wanted to be a person who was loved by their mother and I wanted to be a person that was happy inside. I have all the adoptee sufferings, you know, that we tend as a group to share. And, you know, when you don't know what that is, you want to find out what it is. And not knowing I had been adopted, you know, I just thought I had some big flaw that I wanted to fix, basically. So, you know, it was like three in the morning and it felt like the walls were breathing and everyone was asleep. And I was just looking at my hands and sitting on the floor in the kitchen in the middle of the night and sweating and shaking and all of a sudden looking at my hands the words came you have a mother and her hands looked just like this as i was looking at my own hands and i thought what and i heard it again you have a mother and her hands look just like this and that's how i figured out i was adopted <laughs> really? honest to goodness that's incredible you just in the middle of the night 3 a.m. Revelation. <laughs> this voice calling out to you. This yes. is what's this is what's wrong. That is astonishing. And I said, Oh my God, they adopted me. I couldn't believe it. And I just sat there staring at my hands. They adopted me. This this is the answer. It wasn't all me. There there was a reason. So, you know, a lot of late discovery adoptees will tell you. One one adoptee story, the the neighbor got drunk and she revealed it. And, you know, there have been people who have been cleaning out their parents', you know, attic after the passing of that parent. Or, 
you know, a, a relative finally decides they can't keep the secret anymore. But you didn't have any single person come to you. You didn't find any piece of information. It just hit you. This is the problem. Hit me. I, I remember looking for birth certificates as a kid. Nothing. I never really thought about the lack of stories about my birth or, you know, I never, I never got any warm fuzzies about, Oh, you were, you know, as a baby, la la la, except from the extended family. And yeah, no, I had no, no paper. Nobody got drunk and spilled their beans. Nobody. No, it was a journey inward looking for the truth, which, you know, I mean, this is why adoptee stories are so important to listen to because, you know, that knowledge was inside of me. The experiences were there. You can't take the relinquishment of a baby, the separation of a mother. You cannot remove those from the baby. They're in there. And I mean, I, I and many other people, I'm sure, am proof of that. I mean, those were the words that came in my own head. You have a mother while staring at my hands. My hands had always yelled at me like there was something about my hands. It was um, was one of those aha moments, I guess. That you call them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what do you do with that? You're sitting on the floor at three o'clock in the morning and you've had this thing hit you. Yeah. Like what do you what do you do with what? that? I mean you Yeah, what would like you would be, do with that? I mean, one thing you would think I would think you would want to do is go to your parents and confront them, but that could be really difficult because you've also said, I've given up, I'm not gonna try anymore, and now here you are coming with what could be perceived to them as an accusation if they weren't ready to admit it. You know, you do you go to your sisters, like Right. So uh, before I had left, I had made a lunch date with my adopted mother for when we were there because I was going to meet her for lunch and say, look, I'm done being who you say I am. It's not, you know, I'm just done. Like I was going to try and resolve it with her on some level. And so the whole other thing that happened changed that lunch date quite a bit so there i am in the middle of the night and i'm freaking out you know in a way of like the walls are breathing and you hear about acid trips i did not need acid I, it was like being it's a mystical experience you know in all religious traditions they talk about the shattering of the vessel or you know any kind of mystical experience. I was in the middle of a mystical experience and it took everything I had to stay with it. And so I just sat there till the morning and, you know, I would go into the bathroom, and look at my teeth or go into the bathroom and look at my eyes and like, oh my God. I mean, all of a sudden I saw myself in such a different way. I, I belonged to someone and I probably looked like someone and oh my gosh. So I did wait till the morning and I sat at my cousin's door where I always stayed at one of my cousins that I was very close to. And um, her husband came out, you know, like seven in the morning and he says, what are you doing? I said, well, Joe, they adopted me. And he he just looked at me like oh my god you have to talk to your parents i said no i need to talk to you right now they adopted me didn't they and he said you have to talk to your parents and you know it was a secret nobody was going to go against my mother he certainly wasn't going to he married into the family and so i said it a few more times cuz we were close and he knew my struggles with my mother. And so I said, Joe, you have to tell me. And he finally said, you know, yeah, they did. Wow. <laughs> That's, I, what, I remember like to hear the admission from him. I jumped up and down with elation. I was thrilled at first. 
you know, I deconstructed later, trust me, but I, I was really happy for the information. It was the truth. Right. And the truth you'd been waiting for and hadn't, couldn't figure out. Right. I hear you. And looked for my whole life. The truth. It was great. The next day, Danielle's shock and excitement for figuring out her truth had her feeling like she wanted to tell everyone. She had figured out she was adopted and there was shock amidst their family gathering. At the big family dinner the first night, Danielle described the scene like if she had died and she was at her own funeral and could see and hear everyone, but it all seemed far away, like she was watching from the outside. It was a lot for everyone to process that this lifelong secret about Danielle's adoption was out. It took a while for it to really settle in with people. Her sisters weren't at that family event when Danielle discovered herself, so she had to break the news. I had to tell my sister, my baby sister, my my youngest sister, I had to tell her and that was pretty tough and they wanted to wait, but I said, no way. I mean, I'm not holding that from her. And so that was probably one of the roughest moments, you know, imagine that phone call. She didn't know. They didn't know. It was big. Then I came home and really deconstructed. You know, I really had a pretty serious, I just completely, it was like everything in my brain broke apart and then I had to ride it out till it found its new place. What did that and, mean? Were you well, were you able to go to work? Were you reclusive? Were you withdrawn? Were you No, I withdrew. I called a group of friends. I said, You guys have to take care of me. I'm I'm really suffering and you need to feed me and don't let anybody see me and I don't want any medical attention and I'm going in. <laughs> and it was I died. You know, I physically my brain remembered every conversation, every milestone, every, it just remembered everything in my life. And I had to find a new place and a new context for everything. And that took, you know, a good week of really feeling like I was dying. You know, I was in bed and it hurt. And I mean, like my chest, it was just, you know, panic attacks and this and that and it was just lucky I was me because you know I didn't lose my grip on life even though I had to take this journey to come to terms and you know come to the present is a huge betrayal you know it was just huge the adoptive family stuff really I I died to who I had been you know and so the journey became piecing myself back together and finding out who I really was, who am I really? Mm. And so that was a long journey and it was a slow agonizing journey, but there were, you know, all sorts of wonderful experiences along the way. I, I did a rebirthing class. I listened to sad music and cried. And then I didn't even get to the adoption part yet. You know, that I had a mother somewhere or... Right. Yeah. yeah. Hadn't, even, hadn't even gotten there yet. Yeah. So did you... Forgive me if I've missed this and I'm sorry. Did you ever speak with your mother about this? My adopted mother? Yeah. Like in that first moment of revelation in this this traumatizing time of, of dying alone, did you yeah, have a conversation I, with her about, about this? Yes, I, she was with my aunt and my cousin came with me and I just went to where they were and they opened the door and they had been told ahead of time. And so when they opened the door, I just said, I figured it out. You guys adopted me. And, you know, she said they didn't pay for me. And she said, you know, a few things like that. They never met her. Just a few things like that. Was she trying to bring you comfort by saying we didn't pay? <laughs> you know, I'm trying to figure out what those kinds of comments were. Well, you, you wouldn't bring comfort to anybody saying those things, and I wouldn't, but I don't really know. I mean, I, I guess she just was saying what she wanted to say. I don't know. It, it wasn't, I mean, was it comforting? Mm, not really, but 
you know, I don't, I don't know if she's malicious. Yeah. I know that she, she, you know, if you look at it from her side, that was a big burden for her to carry all those years and it didn't do her any good. And it, it never worked out for her. It never helped her say anything that was really good. I mean, it was too big a burden for her and she didn't really work at that great. She did. I mean, I was fed, I had clothes, I went to school and, but those were just the first things that she thought of saying. Danielle went inside herself, reanalyzing her life from the perspective of being an adopted person. She connected with the fact that she had a mother out in the world and began a search to locate the woman. Danielle didn't have the modern resources like internet access, social media, and mobile phones like we have now, but she found her birth mother. Digging and uncovering information, she learned that her adoptive parents had been connected to a hospital physician through a friend, so somewhere along the way, Danielle's birth mother was a link in the chain. While searching, Danielle found an attorney's name who handled the adoption paperwork, so she called him. That attorney gave Danielle what she needed. He told me her name when I contacted him, and um, he remembered her quite well. And, you know, growing up, I remember him always staring at me. I remember thinking, why does he always stare at me? And I, I, I just didn't understand what the deal was. But he first thing said, you know, when he told me her name, that, wow, you know, this nurture versus nature, he was just really surprised at the nature part because I was her daughter. And so I went to the law library with her name and I started digging and I started copying phone book pages down. I had to go back to Canada for this type of stuff since I was born there. And I didn't really know where she was from. I didn't know she was from Scotland at that point. Mm -hmm. And then the final, final stage was, long story short, in the sixth year, I moved to another state and was working at this place and uh, making cheesecakes and the the woman that hired me i went in for the interview and she somehow she brings up adoption you know it was like that there were like crumbs all over i had to follow them in 1996 danielle was working at a bakery in montana the woman who hired her revealed that she had just found her biological family using a guy in idaho who helped with searches for 250 dollars it was the cheapest price Danielle had found, and she wasn't in a position to pay much more. She turned over all of the information she had to the man, and he found her birth mother. He contacted her, and the Friday morning, I started feeling all sorts of, I couldn't sleep all weekend. I was living near Mount Shasta at the time. I went to Mount Shasta and just really, you know, opened my heart to the mountain. As crazy as this is, it's who I am and what I did, and you know, sort of just preyed on it, really. And my husband was like, wow, what is wrong with you? And I said, I don't know, really. And when I came home from the mountain that day, there was a message on my machine that that guy had found her. And here was her phone number. She's waiting for you to call. That's astonishing. Wow. Really unbelievable. That's so cool. And she said, what took you so long? <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> First thing. Incredible. <laughs> so she'd been waiting for you. Yeah. Well, that's nice. 30 years. Oh, my gosh. So what was that first conversation like? That's how it was. I said I didn't know. That's what took me so long. And um, it was really pretty great. I was, you know, so thrilled. And so we remained in contact and we you know, faxed. She was living uh, in Spain at this time. And we faxed a lot and wrote letters and sent pictures back and forth. And and then within like a year, I made plans to go. She said, you've got to come. So I went to Spain and I met her and I was pretty wild. That must have been incredible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The taxi ride, we were going to meet at the airport and the taxi ride over there was the the world was spinning and moving, you know, just completely out of body. Oh, that's so cool. 
Wow. And how, how will I know or how will I recognize or how, you know, imagine you're walking through an airport and you're looking at everyone. Well, who's your mother? And it was great. But I found her, I saw her and knew, knew it was her right away. And How'd you know? How do you know? Just like when you saw your mom at the elevator. Oh my God, that's, there it is. Like, right? Yeah. That feeling, yeah. that moment. You just, it's nobody else. Like at that moment, it's that person. That's your mother. Good, bad, or ugly. So what was it like after that? You guys rode home to her place? Mm -hmm. We went to her place and we stayed there for two weeks and it was really great. And it was really great. It was, she, she, however, needed to keep with the secret part to all her friends and everybody there. And she had two sons that she... You know, she was going to tell in time, but I was to remain a secret until all of that was sorted. But she put me on the phone with my grandmother. She put me on the phone with one brother, <sighs> but said, don't tell them who you are, you know. And long story short, after three years of me waiting for her to tell my brothers that I existed, I gave up waiting because... I just realized she's never going to tell them. Mm -hmm. When I told her I was going to look for them, she said, if you do, you know, I won't ever speak to you again. And she's held her promise. So I got ghosted. Yeah. Like 20 years or so, but I did find my grandmother and meet her and she was pretty thrilled. And then she kept that secret from my mother that she met me. And then I found my brother like four years ago and we're in contact and he's kept that a secret from her and he has not and won't tell my other brother and i still haven't found my other brother really interesting yeah. that he's kept it from the mother and won't tell the other brother why do you has he told you why well there's so much shame and so much it, it's a really frightening set of circumstances and I can only imagine i mean he's just sort of said my other brother's going to be really mad when he finds out that secret so I think he's protecting our mother. Did she tell you anything about your conception? Yeah, she did. And she told me my father's name at the time and they had dated and it took took me years to try and find him. And I finally did a DNA test in 2020. Danielle's DNA was linked to a distant cousin match, her own birth father's cousin. Finding that woman led Danielle down the family tree to her birth father. She learned she had two paternal sisters on her birth father's side. After a week of emails and phone calls, she learned he was up the coast in Canada, nearly 20 hours away by car. Danielle decided she was going to make the long drive to meet her biological father. He was 87 at the time of their reunion. She packed her dogs in the car for the long drive north, and stayed at her new sister's home for several weeks to get to know the family. We spent every day together, and he told me everything about his life and my mother. And so that was pretty terrific. And I look a lot like him also and wow. had a lot in common. And he it was pretty great. And then he passed away eight weeks after I got home. So wow, the time really? Oh, man. that Because you... I would imagine you're still on the high at that time. Like, that must have been so tough to have finally found him, connected, and, yeah. met, and then you lost him. Yeah. Well, the tough part was saying goodbye because you don't often know it's the last time you're going to see someone. But I, I knew, of course, that the chances were slim I'd see him ever again. So saying goodbye to him was, that was rough. But, beautiful and sweet and it's it's also nice to be able to say goodbye to someone in that way so it was you know i mean i'm not young anymore so it wasn't a big shock he was 88 when he passed so did he know you existed no he did not recall that danielle had basically resigned from the relationship with her adoptive mother but she had made meaningful connections in her biological family. And sometimes adopted people want to share some of their journey to reunion to see how it will be received by their adoptive relatives. 
Danielle had been through a lot in Reunion and in other areas of her personal life, but none of it mattered to most of her adoptive family. Well, my resignation in my heart was the relationship with my adoptive mother, but everybody was not very interested or supportive of my journey because, you know, they just couldn't relate and they didn't see what the big deal was. And, you know, they said things like, well, you don't owe her anything. And they were not interested. So I I just went inward. I didn't have contact with them. I mean, I have to throw in this other thing because it's just there. In 92, I had three seven-point earthquakes that ripped my house and business apart. So I had a lot going on, and they were just nowhere to be found. And they were, they're angry with me, and they feel rejected, and they feel abandoned by everything I went through. So we were out of touch for, you know, a great many years till last year. On social media, my little sister was skulking around and found that I had, I posted one thing that I found my birth father and she, she came out of the woods. And so we've been in contact and had a great year in contact. And then she came to see me. And so we had a really great reunion. And then I went and I just spent a month with her in October. And now it's back in the vault. Everything's, um, it's all back in the vault just because I did see my adopted mother again and I stayed with her and basically (laughs) had to run out of there for my life, you know, and. Like before you went crazy. Yeah. Before I said things I didn't want to say. I didn't really want to go. I didn't want to challenge the whole thing or go there. And, you know, they're still who they are and still, she's still traumatized by the war. She's still afraid people are going to break into the windows at night. God, that's awful. What a horrible way to live. Yeah. And you yeah. can't, I mean, I can't help thinking, you know, there's folks in Ukraine who are living through this very nightmare. Yeah. There's a whole new set of traumatized children and yeah. teenagers. From a war-torn country right at this moment it's super sad to think of and, and your adoptive mother was one of those people from world war ii it's just sadly exactly. poignant for what's happening right at this moment it's too bad all over the world i mean you know i mean that that's one of the reasons i felt so bad about my own situation that i couldn't you know be a better child or whatever because you know it's war and you don't you can't really trump war trauma and so the things that happen to me aren't seen as important because it doesn't even come close to war trauma. And war trauma is really terrible. And I mean, look at Syria, look at all sorts of places. I mean, I don't know, my heart just, I bet for you too, it, it's devastating to witness what those people go through. I don't even know how people do it. I barely got through my stupid little thing. I know. It's crazy. I mean... On one hand, it speaks to the strength of the human spirit to get through. There are a lot of survivors out there, you know, but it also in many ways speaks to the power of the community to come together to support others so that their strength can carry on, right? These these folks are refugees and they're abandoned and, you know, all of these things. And in order to to get to even the next step on their journey as they walk it requires someone to reach out a hand to say here let me help you right here's a here's a blanket here's a place to stay let me give you you know some food let me like just even that little tiny piece that helps people realize like those people who came after you are bad people but not everybody in the world is bad and i'm here to help is incredibly powerful to help people keep going and feel some kind of hope for you know what humanity has to offer but you're right. Like there are so many world tragedies out there where there've got to be some people who just wonder why is this happening to me and my people? You know? Yeah. It's the only thing I really care about is figuring out how do you keep going? You know, how do you, it's like why people adopt in the first place back to adoption. People adopt because they're, they've suffered the loss of not being able to bear a child or what have you. So ultimately, 
all of our life journey, you know, some more than others, it's required that we find that strength. And like you're saying, the community, we are so important to one another and we are the only way people who are suffering are going to survive. We, we all need each other in that way and we all have something to contribute. If you don't join a community or do something, you're somewhat helpless, but you, you hit it spot on. I mean, community is really, really so important and there are so many really crazy things in the world. So let me ask, you've been through a lot. You know, you have, as a late discovery adoptee in your 30s, you had to, you basically feel like you died and, and you know, sort of removed yourself from the person you were, rebuilt yourself into a new person. In this journey of discovery, you found your biological mother, you traveled overseas, talked to people on the phone who didn't know that you were who you were to her. <laughs> And then you you end up, you know, being ghosted by her, but yet connecting with her own mother and and your own brother and your paternal side of the family. Like, how are you doing now? I'm trying to hold it together, Damon. (laughs) I'm trying to hold it together. I'm grateful, mostly, and I'm trying to hold it together. I'm really trying to make sense of the journey and make sense of my life. And I'm suffering, you know, it's, it's an internal suffering. I, my outside, like I'll look around my house and say, Oh, there's so much joy and paintings and plants and it's full of life and I'm full of life. And then there's also such a, deep sorrow and living with both those things at the same time and not losing your mind or not, you know, falling to one more than the other. It's a, it's a, it's a walk, you know, it's a a slow walk and it takes, takes time to process things and takes time to be with, you know, sometimes I'm sad, sometimes I'm not. You know, and I'm getting too old to really, I don't want to carry the burden anymore either. You know, I want it to be resolved or solved or I don't know if it ever is, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. And, you know, I'm still working it. I've heard people say, you know, it's probably a lifelong journey and why wouldn't it be? That's a good point. I would imagine uh, it is. Cause there'll be triggers and there'll be moments and there's highs and lows and all of that stuff. Yeah. I can imagine that yeah. it's basically a lifelong journey. I mean, even for myself, I consider myself incredibly lucky, honestly. And still, you know, as a member of this community, I'm reminded that not everybody has had some of the highs that I've had and, and, and not everybody is, as strong as the person next to them, let's say. And and so we all manage these things differently. And so even for me, I just think about how things could have been and, and, and I continue to be grateful for how they are. And it's, it's a life journey, lifelong journey, even though it was positive. Do you know what I mean? I do. It's, it's really walking two lives at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you have to live the life where you have your family and you have your job and you have your, you know, and then there's the, the adoption life, the, the life you didn't have, the life, you know, the reunion, the search, the ghosting, the, you know, there's, it's too, it's like a tandem life. It's a tandem bicycle ride with yeah. one driver. Yeah, that's right. One driver who <laughs> alternates between both seats, right? Yeah. Danielle, wow. I'm one, I'm just so grateful for you to have opened up to share your story because as we've said the community needs each other and we have to hear one another's stories in order to sort of recognize i'm not alone in this other people are surviving and this is the way that they did it and if they did it i can do it too and uh, Mm -hmm. i'm just grateful to you for trusting me to help share your story and i hope someone gets something out of this and, and i'm glad to hear that you're surviving and doing okay well and i appreciate all the stories that everyone has shared that I've heard and all that you're doing. And um, it's really, I I was so surprised to know there are so many of us out there and 
it's really so helpful to hear everybody's story. It's helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much, Danielle, for being here. I really appreciate it. You take care now. All the best, all right? Thank you, Damon. Bye-bye. Keep well. You too. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. Danielle lived her young life trying to figure out why she wasn't enough for her mom, not knowing that she was an adoptee. The early morning, jarring revelation that she was adopted gave her some answers as to why she and her mother never got along and why she looked so different from everyone else. The person she had been had died when she discovered that she was an adoptee and she needed time to take it in, wallow in it, accept things, then try to heal. I was really glad to hear she had a chance to meet her birth mother and father, but it was sad to hear that she lost them both. One to secrets, the other to the end of his long life. Like Danielle said, we adoptees need one another and sharing our stories, like she has with us, is important for our collective understanding and healing. We agreed, it's nice that we can count on each other as a community for support. Many of us are trying to hold it together and make sense of our lives. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you've found something in Danielle's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.